Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and um, custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, welcome to Tuesday Breakfast on Tuesday the 19th of June. Uh, My apologies about those technical issues a moment ago. Paneling is still um, a whip. Well, a work in progress. I think you're doing a great job. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Um, thank you for joining us on 3CR Community Radio. I'm Lauren. I'm Anya. And we are Son, George and Ayan today. Mm. Um, George is still in essay marking. I won't call it purgatory, but mm. similar. Same, mm. same. Same, same. Um, Ayan's away on a placement doing some important work for the community. So this is the important work for the community. Yeah, no. <laughs> and you better be listening wherever you are. It's too early for this. Um, well, so if you like Lauren and my voices, then you're in for a treat. Mm. And if you don't, we apologize for the next <laughs> 90 minutes. So a lot has been happening um, in, well, in feminism, I guess, in the last week since mm. we were last here. Um, some pretty devastating news. Mm-hmm. across Australia, um, in particular two young women um, who were... I, I feel like we should maybe do a content warning before we... Um, mm, yeah. So, look, we're going to be talking for the next five minutes or so about um, some recent events that have happened in Australia. Um, so there'll be a content warning of, of violence against women, potentially sexual assault, mm-hmm. Um so if you if it's a bit much for you this morning, you want to switch off for five minutes and come back to us, um, that would be fine. And also, I encourage you to call Lifeline on one three one 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 four if um, if that raises anything. So or CASA, so that's the Centers Against <coughs> Against Sexual Assault. Their number is one eight hundred eight zero six two nine two, and we encourage you to make sure that you're well supported during this this difficult time. Mm. Some beautiful scenes um, from last night's vigil. Mm. I think it's about 10,000 people yep. were there yep. in Prince's Park and the Sydney vigil. Um, so in the same week that, and now I always say her name wrong, what did I just say earlier? She? Euricity. Oh, all right, yeah. Is that how I say yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. In the same week that um, Euricity was, was killed in Prince's Park, a woman named Chi Yu mm. was killed by her male housemate, in well, I mean he's been charged. I shouldn't say. Um, I believe he's been charged with mm. the murder um, in New South Wales. And so there's a lot 
um, there's a lot of layers to that, I think, um, mm. in terms of, well, look, we can unpack that a bit further, but certainly Yuri City's parents requested that um, vigils held in her name across the country last night were vigils for vigils for all victims of other women, violence maybe. against yeah. women. Mm. Um, it's just to emphasise the the breadth of the issue. Mm. Um, and I mean, it's 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 really um, it's really touching and very important. Um, but I think we should also talk about, um, I guess, the framing of the issue and how you know women were immediately told to be more aware of their surroundings, to take care of themselves more, um, without putting the blame where where it belonged, which was, you know, the perpetrators of such violence. Mm. Um, and so it's just um, it's just another reminder of how far we have to go. Mm. Mm. And um, and I thought it was interesting. There was a lot of a lot of discourse around the ways in which I suppose these two awful awful murders were sort of juxtaposed <clears throat> by a lot of feminist commentators um and so I mean there is the the obvious lacking of media coverage and outpouring of support for Chi in the same way that there was for Eurys oh my goodness Eurysity mm. um and you know a lot of people have have made the point that Chi is a woman of color yeah, she was an international student, yeah. um, and she was also assaulted behind closed doors. And so, yeah, that was the mm. interesting. I mean, not interesting um, in any way, except that it's Australia is so willing to talk about violence against women when it's a horrifying public mm. sort of anomaly. Mm. But there's just this complete radio silence when it comes to violence behind closed doors mm. and and we know like it's it, we don't need to talk about it anymore we know that this this kind of violence is overwhelmingly perpetrated mm. behind closed doors in family homes by people by that the people victim they knows know. yeah. and yeah. usually by people that they love mm. and the fact that it's not even worthy of a mention mm. is just so telling yeah mm. um so maybe let's talk about something a little more um, of a feminist win, perhaps. Hmm. Uh, you may remember a few weeks ago, people who listened to the show, um, well, I suppose regularly, um, we heard from a friend of mine named Mariana, an Argentinian woman who's living in Melbourne, and she was talking about the fight for the legalization of abortion in her country. And... Um, so abortion has passed the oh, abortion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, the decriminalization. Early. Yes, yeah. the decriminalization of abortion has passed the lower house in Argentina. Amazing. Yes, um, there was a couple of abstentions, and um, outside of that, it was quite a tight vote, it seems. But it passed, and so that's great. Tuesday breakfast would just like to acknowledge the hard work, mm. um, tireless campaigning, and complete just overwhelming bravery mm. of all of the women who led the charge um, in Argentina mm. for this. Um, Shall we go to a song? Yeah, let's go to the song. Mm. In honour of Georgie, who is not here, obviously, but um, who always comes with the music goods, I'd like to play Steady Hazen by 3070, because I know this is one of your favourites, so George, you better be listening. Ah, ah. Do you see it? We play it. 
I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Well done, indeed. (laughs) Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast and 3CR. We thought we would just um, touch base a little bit about something that is purportedly starting in two weeks and Mm. is very important um, to a lot of people who listen to 3CR and just people in the community. Mm. And that is the Federal Redress Scheme for the Survivors of Institutional Child Abuse. So once again, I'm full of content warnings this morning. If if this is something that's a bit difficult for you to listen to, we'll only be talking about this for about five minutes. Mm. So if you'd like to switch off and switch back on um, and... Please do give Casa a call if this is raising anything for you. Uh, the number is 1-800-806-292. That's 1-800-806-292. So, Anya, mm. you work quite closely with institutional child abuse. I do, yes. What um, What's the latest with the redress scheme? Um, so just a bit of background is the the redress scheme is um, set up to provo- provide support to people who are sexually abused as children while in the care of an institution. Um, and it was recommended by the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. Um, and so subject to the uh, passage of legislation, the scheme will start on the 1st of July. So that's in two weeks, I think, mm. and will run for 10 years Um at the moment, I think it's still – so the second reading of the the bill was done yesterday. So I think it should be passing in the next few days, which, um, you know, is exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far we've got um, the governments of New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, South Australia, Tasmania, Northern Territory and the ACT. Um, they've all committed to join the scheme. Western Australia remains the only state yet to commit to joining the scheme, but I think they there was a news report last week where they said they, they would. It's mm-hmm. just um, appearing before the Senate soon. And what about religious organisations? Have many of them signed on? Uh, there are six major non-government institutions that have um, committed to join the scheme. That's the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Salvation Army, the YMCA Scouts Australia and the Uniting Church. Um, they've all announced that they will join the scheme as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it looks, looks pretty big, looks, um, looks exciting, I suppose. Um, and so maybe, um, I don't know if you can speak to this or not, but um, some people have sort, of, um, have sort of been worried that maybe signing on to the redress scheme is a way for these big organisations to kind of mitigate their losses so they mm. don't have to go through legal processes and potentially go to court and all mm. of that, but they can do redress and pay people less money mm. um, in compensation or as redress. Is that is that true? Is that how you see it? Well, I think that's definitely a concern. Um, if, you know, if people don't, don't get proper advice about the sort of um, common law claim that they can um, pursue, then... Um, you know, I do, I do think that it's worth getting some legal advice about that. But the redress scheme is good for people who really don't want to go through a lengthy and, you know, mm. expensive court process. It's, it's quick. Um, that's how it's meant to be. Um, and it's for survivors who don't want to go through a whole emotional and 
you know, potentially re-traumatizing experience. So good and bad. Um, overwhelmingly, I think it's it's um, it's a recognition that these institutions have all messed mm. up in the past um, and are trying to provide some sort of redress. Um, and hopefully, it would benefit survivors in in some way. Um, and it's not just. Um, Money. So the redress scheme also provides for access to psychological counselling. Um, there's a direct personal response, like an apology from the responsible institution for people who want it. Um, so I think that's pretty encouraging as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so if people wanted a bit more information about this before the law is passed or even just after... Um, is there a website they can go to? or um, The Department of Social Services website, so if you just Google Department of Social Services Redress Scheme, that website is pretty good. Um, they have a little section that says frequently asked questions, and, um, yeah, it looks pretty good to me. Um, you can contact um, NORMA, which is a, a CLC community legal service that you know um, works with survivors of institutional um, child sexual abuse, Um yeah, there's a lot of information right now about it at the moment. So Wonderful. Mm. All right, well, we'll be right back on Tuesday Breakfast with Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth to discuss the federal government's proposed anti-espionage bill. Rumination. Three CRs, rooming house and homeless persons issues program. Featuring information on health and housing services as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855am. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. On the line with us now we have Cam Walker, who is the Campaigns Coordinator at Friends of the Earth. Good morning, Cam. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, so um, let's chat about these new foreign interference and espionage laws that are being proposed by the federal government. What are they? What are they all about? Yes, they sound kind of both uh, obscure and innocuous on some levels, I guess. There's two bits of legislation, but they're also connected to a third piece of legislation that were originally tabled as a series. So the first one looked at foreign donations. These two look um, at foreign influence and national security. And so ostensibly they're a, a, a modernisation of the security and the espionage laws that impact on Australia. And partly that's because there's been so much commentary in the media around, say, the, you know, the influence of, of foreign actors and donations flowing to political parties here and so on. Uh, but it's also a kind of modernising uh, with social media, with the internet nowadays. The security situation is very different for Australia than it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago. So it's, it's three bits of legislation. Um, the two we're focusing on at present are the Foreign Influence Transparency uh, Bill and the National Security Legislation Amendment, and this one covers espionage and sabotage. Hmm. That's really interesting context. So we're sort of looking at, I guess, um, the alleged Russian interference in the American election and this whole new 
new McCarthyism, fear of Chinese influence in Australia and all of these sort of contextual things? Is that, is that where we're working yes. from? Mm. Yes, so that's, that's the, the front part of it. I guess the fine print detail in the background is that there's been a very long-running campaign by the Conservatives in the coalition government, and you know this has been very well documented. Um, there's been an attempt basically to rein in what's called civil society groups, so non-government organisations and particularly environmental organisations. Mm. And this has been running for at least three years, um, it was canvassed many years ago by the right-wing Institute of Public Affairs. It's been adopted with enthusiasm by some in the Minerals Council and the Queensland Resources Corporation and supported by kind of key conservative, uh, well, arch-right-wing conservative MPs in the coalition. They'd be very well-known to mm-hmm. listeners. And they've gone through a whole series of processes to rein in the ability of green groups to work effectively. So they did a, a House of Representatives inquiry to green groups. They did a a kind of quote reform of charities process last year. They previously sought to ban foreign donations and they put a man who's got a long connection to the Institute of Public Affairs who doesn't like charities in charge of charities and has made him the uh, Federal Commissioner of what's called the ACNC. So there's, there's been this very, very long process so we have to look at these bills because they do capture charities in them, uh, not just actual political actors and, and, and foreign forces. And so we have to look at these current bills through the lens of this very long campaign to limit our, our ability to work effectively. Mm. I do want to come back to this, um, the impact that it could have on protesting, but I sort of wanted to just set the context a little more. Um, a lot of the the work that's being, or the writing that's being done around these these bills um, by Friends of the Earth and also people like Elaine Pearson from Human Rights Watch. Um, one of the issues that's being consistently picked up is this really broad definition of national security and how that's kind of become this all-encompassing, all, um, all very expansive type of thing, um, which can even mean that community-led campaigns can... Um, influence or harm the economic, political and trust sort of social relationships with other countries. Um, Could you speak to that a little? Because that is just, that's terrifying. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, so national security, you would normally think of foreign forces moving us in a, in a physical sense in terms of attacking us. But you're absolutely right. They're broadening the definition and they're making it basically to cover anything, including, as you say, trust with other nations. So if a environmental group or potentially even a journalist was to harm the trust that other countries hold in Australia, perhaps by pointing to the fact that, you know, we're detaining people on Manus Island or we've got a terrible track record on climate change or anything like that. If we go into the international realm and, in effect, we're harming the perceived trust of Australia, Mm -hmm. that could actually be captured in this new definition of national security. So what they've done is cast the net so widely that it could even just capture an organisation like Amnesty International talking about human rights at the UN. It's remarkably broad and, hence, uh, with the the agenda of the current current government it's remarkably frightening Mm. and so then narrowing that down a bit to um sort of i guess the the forms of protest that we just think are not um are obviously political but wouldn't necessarily have these national security impacts um it's it's an interesting thing that you've raised um in your well in the press release that we sent but um talking about this the critical infrastructure element of these this legislation 
Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, so um, for critical infrastructure, they've defined that quite broadly and said, well, that might be a coal port, it might be something connected to our national economy rather than the local economy of Melbourne or Victoria, uh, but it might be a, an energy facility, so it might be a coal-fired power station, it might even be a gas drilling rig. They can be defined as critical infrastructure, and with that comes a 20-year sentence, maximum of 20 years for interfering with them. Now, normally when you talk about espionage, sabotage, national security, you're thinking if there's a physical attack on critical infrastructure, whereas in this instance, what it might be as simple as someone sitting on a road to blockade access, say, to a coal port or a coal power station where people are accustomed to having access to that plant, i.e. driving into the plant, that could be captured under the espionage legislation. So, again, suddenly... Um, you know, quite low-key, peaceful protest suddenly gets kind of ratcheted up to being caught up in this kind of legislation which is looking at national security. So the fact that they've, they're talking about major economic areas of activity being considered critical infrastructure is also of concern. Hmm. This is um, this is remarkable. It's, um, where um, where is the bill at now? What? How can we stop this? Basically. Yeah, so um, it is a live game at present. It's expected to come back into the federal parliament uh, by the end of this month, so that could happen very soon. Um, what, as is standard with these bills, they go off to a, a, a Senate committee um, to be considered. This process has happened, and very interestingly, both the ALP and the Liberals brought back a single report. Often what happens with the contentious issues like this you'll get minority reports. The ALP decided to stay with the government on this, but they recommended 60 uh, changes to the legislation. So the legislation is tabled, the committee looks at it, the committee's made all these recommendations. It's not yet clear whether the government will take on board all these recommendations to kind of water down the aspects of the, of the bills that do capture charities. Mm. Um, I think the fact that all the charities are together on this, it, it's, a, it's an almost unprecedented. Um, alliance. We've got an umbrella called Hands Off Our Charities, HOC. Uh, it's very easy to find online. And we are working to have the bills basically withdrawn and rewritten. We don't want them just tweaked because mm. um, it's so that the, the question of the charities is so deeply kind of locked into the legislation. And we're working to encourage the ALP to make sure that they do not support the bills in their current form. And the ALP are saying they will not sign on to anything which harms the legitimate rights of charities, which is great. Uh, the Greens are saying that they won't support them in their current form, which is fantastic. And the crossbench at this point don't seem super enthusiastic. So we have a very good chance of knocking these uh, bills off in their current form. Oh, fantastic. Well, you have my personal full support um, and I'll be jumping online to see how I can help. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Cam, and all the best with the, uh, with the fight. Thank you very much. Bye. Guatemala, I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore Black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander 
and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 Welcome back to Tuesday Brekkie on 3CR. We were just joined by Cam Walker, the campaign coordinator for Friends of the Earth, to talk about a truly horrific um, couple of bills that are before Parliament. I'm feeling very um, very depleted after that. Mm. Not because of you, Cam, if you're still listening. That was a great interview. <laughs> but And the fact that almost all charities unanimously agree that this mm. is a really terrible bill um, is a huge red flag. And just like... Anything that is going to limit journalists' ability to do their job. Mm. I just, you know, when he was talking and I was just thinking like the ALP, tweaking something bad Mm. is not this, like it's just not enough. Stop being so centrist, what are you doing? Mm. Mm. But it does sound like, you know, it's not going to, well, hopefully, because the Greens and, yeah. Mm. We'll see. We will see. But um, we will post, I'll post um, the link to the Hands Off Our Charities mm. webpage on our Facebook page if people would like to get involved. Um, and we just wanted to give a little Radiothon update. Mm. So, um, do you know how to do the coin thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, hang on. <clears throat> Ayan, if you're listening. Um, that's really how it is. Um, so we have raised so far $1,425. Chop it. Uh, guys. Um, we're literally $75 away from our target of $1,500. So, you know, keep donating if you want to. But also, thank you all so much. Yeah. That's <laughs> incredible. Um, and we just thought we'll give a, a shout out to... Um, oh all the generous... Do- what's yeah. happening? No, no, sorry. I just um, Our producers just handed me this very exciting post-it note that has um, the whole station overall, um, as of Sunday, has raised $144,721. Oh, my God. Now, we have $105,275 to go. Mm. Um so if you are still in the mood to donate or if you just got paid or if you're just listening to us and thinking, oh, my gosh, these are so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can call nine four one nine eight three seven seven. That's nine four one nine eight three seven seven. Or you can go online to www.3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And send us your money, honey. Mm. <laughs> all, uh, all donations over $2 are tax deductible. It is almost tax time. I'm personally looking forward to mm. um, 
my charitable donations <laughs> <laughs> coming back. But just thank you so much to all of our listeners um, and for the beautiful messages as well. Mm. It's really nice to know that people um, people get something from from Tuesday breakfast mm. and that um, yeah that it's important. Is there anything else you would like to say about radio when you're staring at me? Well, I just thought we could thank <laughs> all our um, generous donors one more time. Also, uh, donator is a word. Which oh, I, did you look this up after your public humiliation of last week? <laughs> I was like, surely that wasn't completely wrong. Um, so it's not wrong. It's just that nobody uses it anymore. Oh, so bring it back. A, yeah, no. So you might be the, donated. the team of the researchers. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It just sounds fake. <laughs> Sounds fake, but okay. Um, so I thought we'll just um, thank all these people once more. Okay. Does that sound good? Yeah, do you think? All right. So Anya, which is not me, but another Anya. Thank you. Um, Aoife, Liz, Alfred, Juliet, Theresa, Rena, Monique, Hella, Haley, Chris, Andrew, Pei, Jane Marie, William, Iris, Khadija, Arij, Priya, Dylan, Nick, Jessica, Ruby, Mike, Alicia, Peter, Elizabeth, Malil, Libby, Hope, Gab, Michaela, and Envy. Thank you all so, 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 so much. This is so overwhelming. Yes. <laughs> okay, that's enough about money. Mm. I'm exhausted. <laughs> this capitalist society. Mm. We wanted to play a little bit of audio now. Um, Anya and I were lucky enough to attend the Feminist Writers Festival a few weeks ago. Together, we do things together outside of here. Mm. And um, I think my, well, my favourite session of what I saw was um, a discussion between Fatima Misham, who is a writer and editor um, at Eureka Street, Maria Tumakin, who is a goddess, mm. and Dr. Sarah Krasnostein, who wrote the incredible book, The Trauma Cleaner. And the three of them were all in conversation about... Um, Using personal narratives mm. um, as a as a strength yeah. in women's writing and, and how to that affects change mm. in the wider political space as well. Yeah. So I just wanted to play this little excerpt of. Um, I didn't get to record very much because I didn't um, wipe my SD card properly in my recorder <laughs> the night before, but I thought this was really interesting. Um, and so this is Fatima Misham at the Feminist Writers Festival. You bring a really kind of very strong historical consciousness, you bring very strong political consciousness as well. So I'm kind of interested in how you think through the relationship between the personal uh, and the kind of, you know, larger than personal, uh, perhaps critique or analysis or interrogation, you know, we can, we can call it all sorts of things. Yeah. And perhaps you can also reflect on that as a, you said, you love, 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 love commissioning. Uh, so also in terms of how you commission, how you write and how you commission, how you think through that relationship. Yeah. Um, first I want to start by saying, if you haven't picked it up yet, um, grab Sarah's book and read her book. Um, it's amazing, really. Um, but to go to your question, um, I think particularly with this essay, um, I think my being here, my experience of being here was just so antagonistic. Like there's something, there's something, there's quite a bit of hostility attached to my being here, I felt. So I arrived in late December 2000 
And then in 2001, the Tampa happened, and 9-11 happened, and all this sort of stuff. So my first year in Australia was really tangled with a lot of rhetoric and, and all this junk that gets thrown out uh, periodically. And I found myself, and you know, when you move to another country, so this, it's, um, it's discombobulating. You know, it's really, it's really disorienting. Um, you know, because the people um, that have these pieces of you that have this picture of who you are, they're kind of over there. <coughs> so when you move to another country, you kind of sort of, oh, you know, I don't have the same pieces anymore. I don't. It's, it really is actually quite disorienting. So, so I moved to another country, and all these pieces of, of my identity that I thought fit were suddenly like misplaced or re replaced. So I was already feeling that, and then to come into an antagonistic, hostile sort of culture, I had to interrogate it. I had to decide which bits to own and which bits to like put aside as not being truthful. And so it revolved around the idea of citizenship, because in this country, it's like it's like the thing that gets weaponized. I can tell you, I've been really, really delighted at how many MPs and senators we've lost because of Section 44. I'm just, oh man, the sudden fright is just exquisite. Um, so, I had, so yes, it, it was a process of, of self interrogation, and, and in order to sort of um, pull apart this thing, I did go into the politicization of it, I did go into historically what did being a citizen even mean. And I suppose in a way it was, it was about coming around and trying to find a way to, to grapple um, you know, with, with this thing in a way that made sense to me. Because if you, if you don't, so I'm kind of trying to reach for a thing that makes sense. Um, I, I, think, I think with identity, you know, unless you make choices or decisions around um, you know, who you are or what, you, what your sense is of who you want to be, you kind of, unless you do that, you end up ceding control to people who have all sorts of opinion about, about who you are and what you want to be and what you'll never be. I think that's the main thing. Um, so yeah, I think that, that's kind of sort of the rough terrain of, of what the essay was. And, and I don't know that someone who had grown up here all their life would have been able to, to traverse that same terrain. It just would be a different experience. So that, that, that essay was really, really grounded in, in a very sort of internal journey, really, that kind of ended up on the page. Um, so, look, I'm not sure how to segue to the commissioning bit, but... <laughs> just do it. <laughs> um, you know, it's just... And, and it's really hard to say these things without um, saying them in, in, a, in a different way, in a fresh new way. But um, it takes a certain kind of context, and it takes a certain kind of person from a particular context to notice things. And so it's really, really important for me, um, um, as one of the people who commissions articles at Eureka Street, that we 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 find those people who notice things that we might not be noticing. That sounds like really, makes us look really good, but um, it makes us better in the end. I mean, there's a self-interest there. Like, our readership has gone up and it's expanded. 
because um, it used to be, um, so our audience used to be mostly, you know, because e-registrate started 25 years ago, it was published by Just Communications, so, you know, it captured, it captured a, a Catholic, you know, readership of a certain age, which are now in their 60s, 70s, 80s. And so that was the, that was the, you know, that was the core, but, you know, surprise, surprise, when you bring in women um, writers, when you bring in women of, uh, women of colour to, to write, you know, these perspectives come to the fore, new audiences come along. Um, so it's really, I, th I think it's, it's critical. Um, you know, and I, I would, you know, I would acknowledge that the editor I work with, like Tim Curran, he's a white news. Why does he come? Sorry, Tim, wherever you are. And he, he acknowledged that. Like, we both really, really felt that it was time to really shake things up. That it wasn't, we weren't, it wasn't, you know, it, we didn't see a future, we didn't see, sorry, we didn't see a future for Eureka Street that didn't involve breaking it apart. So it can be shared. Um, you know, so he, you know, specifically said, I really need you to just go out there and tap people on the shoulder. Um, and so I've really run with it and I've enjoyed it. And I think that it's brought, um, you know, perspectives that, you know, are, that you don't normally see in the mainstream. You know, sometimes, sometimes we publish things knowing it won't get the clicks, but it's, it's an ins it carries an insight that deserves a platform. So, yeah, so that kind of sort of goes to like the, the writing that you do, kind of sort of excavating and in, in, in finding those, those deeper resources to get the full spectrum of humanity. You know, because at, at the end of the day, I think writers reach for the truth, you know, and you can't have the full picture unless you've got all the picture. I'm, I'm kind of sort of, ugh. <laughs> I mean, it would be, but, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like, um, I, I, think, I think that um, we, we deserve it. We owe it to ourselves. We, we owe the truth to ourselves. And that involves... You know, 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. You're listening to 3CR Radio. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Lauren and myself, Anya. Up next, I'm super excited to be talking to Rafiv Ismail. Um, Rafiv is an emerging multilingual award-winning author. In 2017, her short story, Light at the End, was published along with the works of three other emerging 
African writers in the anthology Ways of Being Here. In late 2017, another short story, Elmitra Amongst the Ghosts, was the winning entry of the Deborah Cass Prize for Writing and has been published on Mascara Literary Review. I don't even want to talk about how young she is, too. It's, it's too... She's too brilliant for this. I didn't realise she was in Ways of Being Here. I love that book. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you for joining us today, Rafiq. We will be right back. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Three CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Lauren and myself, Anya. I'm sorry about the technical difficulty. Uh, we're just having a, a bit of a struggle this morning. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Rafiq. Um, thank you so much, and sorry about the technical difficulty <laughs> as well. <laughs> no, that's absolutely fine. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your writing, and how the journey began for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me, growing up in Sudan, um, I was really lucky to be privy to the impact that art has on our society. Mm-hmm. Um because I grew up under the, the Bashir dictatorship, which is still um, the dominant government mm. in Sudan. Mm-hmm. And I was surrounded by a lot of artists, writers, poets, um, journalists, activists, a lot of different people from all parts of lives who all practiced some sort of creative outlet. And it just, um, it was really amazing to see that their work had helped create change. It didn't just help uh, create, like, sustainable change, Mm. but it also, like, it was a way of resistance and a way to build resilience. Mm. And that's what inspired me to become a writer here. Um, So as I, um, when I arrived in Australia, um, I fell in love with science fiction. Mm. I ended up learning English, like to read English through comic books, and was really, really excited to explore new worlds and new points of views. But um, there came a point when when I was very frustrated about the lack of representation Mm. um, and the lack of positive representation 
more so. Mm. Um, where it became really disheartening for me not to be able to see characters similar to myself on the page. Mm. And so I decided to start writing because, um, yeah, like to, I think it's really important for us to see people who look like us, sound mm. like us. Absolutely. Um, mm. Feel like us. Yeah. On the page, it's, it's humanizing. It, it helps us create, it helps us understand the world better. It helps others who might not mm. live in on the same intersections of oppression mm. understand us. Um, mm. And also because I followed, I was inspired by a quote by one of my favorite fighters, Tony Morrison, mm-hmm. um, who said, if there's a book that you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. Mm. And, Amazing. Yeah. Um, so I started, I started writing, um, and I was really lucky to have met some fantastic people on my journey, mm. um, which I feel is still be- just beginning. Um, in 2006, I was part of a project called Ways of Being Here by the Centre for Stories in Western Australia. Mm. And through that, I received a mentorship um, with Dr. Ken Spillman, who was absolutely fantastic and helped me realise a lot of my voice. Mm. And um, then I was published in my first anthology by Margaret River Press, which was called Ways of Being Here, um, an exploration of African literature. Um, And then in 2016, I was really lucky to have won the first national Deborah Castle Prize for writing. Mm -hmm. Um, Previously, the prize has only been awarded in Victoria, and the, the time it went national, I was able to access it, and it has been really, really fantastic. And that's how I met my current mentor, mm. mentor Melissa Lukashenko, yeah. who um, has helped me. And there have been so many people who have been helping me access um, this sometimes inaccessible sector yeah. and just supporting me through this journey. Amazing. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, a workshop that you're doing in Melbourne really soon as part of Writers Victoria. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, so, Writing and Intersectionality is a workshop that um, explores the history of what intersectionality is, mm-hmm. the way it was meant to be presented by Kimberly Crenshaw, which is like an analytical framework that attempts to identify um, how like intersecting systems of power impact um, marginalized people and like marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. It's also a workshop where um, we explore techniques to, um, to I guess, subvert those power structures mm-hmm. to make the literary sector a bit more um, intersectional and accessible for people um, who exist on multiple intersections or just on one intersection mm-hmm. of, um, of oppression. Um, it's also a way, um, so it's a three hour workshop. It's, um, yeah, so history, um, practical solutions, mm-hmm. but also how to respectfully write characters of marginalized backgrounds. Yeah. And I don't just mean write characters of color, right? I mean, um, writing characters with disability, writing mm-hmm. characters, um, across class, 
mm. and all those things um because that is a conversation that we absolutely need to have mm. um in Australian literary spaces at the moment mm. so that will be the workshop and i hope that people can attend mm. i think i put it on my twitter that if someone's white and in a position of power mm. they should attend this workshop because it's the only time mm. someone's willing to educate yeah um so Yeah. yeah, it sounds like a really, really important workshop. Um, but I just wanted to unpack that a little bit. Um, intersectionality as a term is, um, you know, it's really important, but it's also sort of the, the flavor of the month these days. Everyone's, you know, mm-hmm. using that as a, as a buzzword. Um, but are, what are your experiences of intersectionality in writing? And do you think we're starting to finally get it? Or do you think there's still barriers that we're just completely ignoring? Um. So I think we're working towards a more accessible writing space, like a more accessible literary sector. Mm. But there are still so many barriers. I mean, um, to be a writer of a marginalized background, especially if you exist on multiple um, like intersections of oppression, then it's really, really difficult to access um, the literary space here. Mm. Um, and we have barriers such as language. So uh, a lot of writers of color who speak English as a second or third language mm. might not have the same access as um, folks who speak English as a first language. Um, there's also the financial aspect of it. Writing workshops and conferences and all these things are really expensive to attend mm. and really financially inaccessible. Like, I, I absolutely see the irony of saying that while my workshop fees are super high, mm. um, but that's why there are scholarships available as mm. well. So if anyone would like to um, attend who otherwise might not be able to, mm. um, please contact Writers Victoria because there are scholarships Amazing. available. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it's kind of... Um, there are ways of... it's. I think it's just that we need to work towards making the sector more accessible and therefore that means unpacking exactly what the problems are mm. and what these barriers are mm. um, just so we can work towards dismantling them. Yeah. And I don't mean we as in the folks of marginalized backgrounds, mm. I mean those who have the power to dismantle. Mm. The people with the power, yep. The people with the power mm. should be actively working to dismantle them mm. to be able to meet us halfway there. Yep. Um, yes. Amazing. Um, and I just wanted to talk about your um, the upcoming anthology, Meet Me at the Intersection, um, and you're one of the featured authors. Um, congratulations, firstly, and without giving Thank too much so away. Much. <laughs> can you talk about what the anthology is about and what to expect? Yeah, absolutely. So Meet Me at the Intersection is absolutely, absolutely amazing. I've, um, I'm really, really honored to be featured alongside so many amazing authors. Mm. Um, and... It's an anthology of short fiction, memoir, and poetry by authors who exist on one or more um, intersections, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, there are First Nations authors, people of color, um, queer folks, people mm-hmm. living with a disability. Um, and this, it kind of contains a unique perspective on life in Australia mm-hmm. for every single person. Um, and yeah, I really love it because 
it's a way to showcase voices that are often regulated to the margins. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it will bring them to the forefront of the of the literary world. Um, and I love anthologies because they're a really fantastic way for emerging authors mm-hmm. to get their start, mm-hmm. um, especially if you are an author of color who's never been published before. Like mm-hmm. anthologies um, are one of those, and anthologies like this, um, and like writing programs that end with anthologies, they are a way to be able to access something that's sometimes really hard to almost inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so the anthology is currently available for pre-order at Fremantle Press. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an absolutely fantastic read, mm-hmm. and I highly recommend people pre-order it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And not just because my name is on it, because <laughs> there are so many amazing people. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it sounds yeah. amazing. I'll, I'll be pre-ordering for sure. Um, and we're going to have to wrap it up now, but thank you so much once again mm-hmm. for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast, Rahif, and we wish you all the best for the workshop and your writing journey. Thank you so much, and take care. <laughs> thank you. Bye. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay in a chicken strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Lauren and myself, Anya. We just listened to um, the amazing Rafiv Ismail, an emerging multilingual award-winning author, um, about intersectionality and writing. Next up, we are pleased to be joined by Michael Green, Michael is a journalist whose works have been published in various publications, including Harper's Magazine, SBS, The Age, Sydney Morning Herald, and Overland Overland Journal. He is also one of the project coordinators for Behind the Wire, which is an award-winning oral history project documenting the stories of the people who have been detained by the Australian government after seeking asylum in Australia. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me, Anya. Can you tell us a little bit about Behind the Wire and your role in the organisation? Uh, sure. Yes. So, so um, a couple of my um, fellow volunteers, um, Andre and Fiona, started it about four years ago. So I think now um, mm-hmm. they were doing some volunteering at um, one of the legal centres, helping people um, prepare their refugee assessment applications, and they felt like people kind of trying to tell bigger stories about their lives, things that weren't relevant for that process. Mm. Um, And so they decided to set up this um, oral history project. And also because at the time um, there was a lot of policy debate and a lot of kind of um, uh, argy-bargy in the public about, about about immigration detention, but not so much explaining exactly what it was like for people you know, like what mm-hmm. what was it like inside those centres? Mm-hmm. You know, people weren't allowed to go in, or only into um, some of them in, in sort of prescribed areas. So, um, 
what we set out to do was to um, um, to work with people um, really slowly and carefully in a way um, that they controlled um, what sort of story they wanted to tell and, and what they wanted to say about their experiences um, mm. and, and to produce kind of uh, like literary sort of compelling narratives um, uh, with them um, about their experiences. Mm. Mm. So, so I know... Um, yeah. Produced, mm. uh, yeah, so, no, no, so you in go. those years we made a, um, a book which is called They Cannot Take the Sky and mm-hmm. a, a museum exhibition um, of the same name mm-hmm. uh, and a podcast called The Messenger, um, mm-hmm. among, among other things. Yeah, um, and I know that Behind the Wires obviously does a few different things. Um, are there any events coming up uh, that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually a bit of an exciting day. The um, exhibition which we made um, last year, which showed at the Immigration Museum, is now opening. Uh, the opening night is tonight at um, in Craigieburn at the Hume mm. Global Learning Centre. So mm-hmm. um, you can get along for um, there's going to be food by Tamil Feasts and um, one of our volunteers, Aaron Malaganam, um, is making a speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's on uh, from 6 o'clock tonight in Craigieburn. Amazing. Uh, we also have another talk. Um, Jungle Zari Zara Man is, is doing a talk at Brunswick Library um, on, the, hold on a second. Um, the 27th of June um, at mm-hmm. 7.45. You can uh, book through the Brunswick Library. All right, 27th of June. All right. Um, now, I just want to talk a little bit about your work with Behind the Wire and generally as a journalist. Um, your focus is often on telling people's stories as a, as a reminder that behind this highly politicized issue, we're after all talking about living, breathing human beings. Um, is there a particular reason why, why you sort of started believing in the power of telling such stories and how you decided to sort of shift your focus to, to that aspect of it? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, uh, you know, telling stories um, is important, and um, you know, I think just in our everyday lives, all of us mm-hmm. seek out stories, and uh, we tell each other stories. Um, you can't stop us, really, mm-hmm. humans. But, um, um, of course, uh, stories about people's experience are not the only thing, and they're not. Uh, alone going to create change um so i i kind of don't um think it's the 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 end of um of the struggle but um i i guess what happened with behind the wire particularly was that um i get in touch with people and 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 of course not everyone wanted to talk about what they went through and but the people who who um, contacted us or the people who were, we were put in touch with who were enthusiastic were really enthusiastic about um, being part of it so for example um, when I first got in touch with um, Aziz who's um, a Sydney's refugee he's in uh, detention on Manus Island and who I made this quite epic um, podcast series with um, you know I was like I hadn't spoken to anyone who was on Manus, and he had a smuggled phone at the time. It was, mm. it was kind of there was much more limited access um, mm. at, at that moment, um, and so I kind of really had no idea what his life was like or what where he was. And and he just, I remember the first night we spoke, we, we exchanged a whole lot of messages, like 
70 voice messages back mm-hmm. and forth, and, and he was just um, telling me all these things about his daily life there that I found so mm-hmm. um, revealing uh, about what, what he was going through. And, and, and also I was very, like, sort of saying, you know, are you, sh- you know, are you sure that you want to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's going to be a risk for you potentially. And he just said that um, he felt like he had nothing to lose and that he really wanted to have his have people listen to to what he had to say mm-hmm. and to be able to speak out um uh and to share some of the experiences that, that he'd been through and that other people were going through mm-hmm. um and so I, I guess I was just kind of guided by that and we ended up uh, exchanging probably like four or five thousand voice messages mm-hmm. over the course of a couple of years which we then sort of crafted into this um the podcast the messenger mm-hmm. And um, and throughout that, he just was so dedicated to, um, yeah, you know, talking about what he was experiencing. Mm. Um, that you know, that's that was kind of all the motivation that I, yeah. I required. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, like I I remember watching the the video that you played during the panel discussion a couple of weeks ago about um, Beru's Bhutani, and it wasn't it wasn't even about um, his experiences. Um, at Manus, but it was about um, well, his love life, really. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it was just so. I suppose it was quite refreshing to see that aspect of um, of someone talking about not just you know trauma, but like everyday life and, and you know sort of experiences that everyone goes through, and that really. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, mm. I think sometimes um, sometimes it happens that the. Um, you get kind of case studies in a way, like people who are um, either either they're people are sort of subject to to vitriol or they're subject to case studies where they're, they're mm. made into a kind of something that um, fits into a, um, a sort of pity narrative or, or something. And and um, for me, one of the great like amazing things about working on this has been getting to spend a lot of time with someone and find out about them in all their kind of complexity and mm. you know their their anger and their um jealousy and mm. you know all those kinds of things which which are um of course w- what makes them them human yeah. yeah yeah absolutely um and just with um with some logistics i suppose um can people get involved with behind the wire and if so how how do they do that um, well, so, yeah, um, the first thing to do and the first thing we'd love people to do is to um, check out uh, the work. So we have the, the book, The Can I Take the Sky, which is in the, in the bookshops, and the Messenger podcast is um, available through the Wheeler Center, uh, which is um, so wheelercenter.com slash the messenger. Mm-hmm. Um, and behind the wire is a website um, where we have listed our events and um, all the information about it. So sharing those kind of stories is the first thing we like people to do. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, you know, we, like I kind of said, like um, at the time we started, there were lots of there weren't so many people um, who were talking about their experiences in detention. And now, you know, one of the great things that's happened in the last few years is that lots of the people, even offshore, are you know writing and. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking out themselves. So, by the way, it's kind of actually on a little bit of a hiatus in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because, and, but I would encourage people to seek out wherever they can, like um, Bruce Bichani's writing about um, about Manus Island. 
um, as well, mm. and, you know, other people too. So, you know, we have lots of um, stories where people are sort of speaking out directly about their experiences, but, but um, there are other opportunities too for people to, to read that kind of stuff, and I, I think that's very important. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Um, we're going to have to wrap it up right now, Michael, but thank you so much for joining us, and all the best with tonight's exhibition and just generally the project. Thanks very much. So that was Michael Green from Behind the Wire. Mm. Um, And as a bit of a precursor to our next interview, we are going to play a song. Well, no, I won't put Anya in this. I'm going to play a song. (laughs) Um, There is one swear word in it. Um, And so if you've got kids in the car, um, just, yeah, be alert, but definitely not alarmed. It's a great song, and I'm just having a tiny bit of trouble finding it. Please bear with me. All right, this is Rihanna and SZA with the song Consideration. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You're here with myself, Lauren, and Anya. And we were lucky enough to be joined by Michael Green from Behind the Wire and the Messenger podcast, and They Cannot Take the Sky and all sorts of other wonderful things, just before the wonderful song by the wonderful Rihanna. Um, So... We're about to be joined by a woman I very, very greatly admire named Larry Brown. Um, she's a DJ, an event curator, an all-round creative, huge ball of energy. Um, but I did just want to set something up a little bit before we go into this next interview. Um, Larry and I are going to be talking a bit about, or a lot about hip-hop today, um, because that is the music that she DJs and a space that she works within Um and we are going to be talking about it in the context of music and the culture and feminism. But I just want to flag that that doesn't mean that Tuesday Breakfast or myself, that we believe that other types of music or musicians are immune from being derogatory or harmful towards women. Um, I want to discuss it because it's a genre of music that frequently attracts a lot of criticism for its treatment of women. Um, so I'd like to unpack that with somebody who can really speak to it in more detail, being Larry. But I just wanted to be really clear that we are not singling hip-hop out for being anti-feminist. So um, we are joined on the line now by Larry. Good morning. Morning, Lauren. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Okay, so peppermint tea and enjoying the morning. Oh, you're awake already. I love it. I love it. I'm sorry for getting you out of bed so early. <laughs> um, 
Um, I've been up for a while, thank you. <laughs> so what? Um, let's start with um, with. So you're a DJ, but what other kind of work do you do? Um, and how long have you been DJing? And all of that. Let's talk about that. Okay, cool. So I've basically been. I think I'm in my eighth. I, I've actually lost count. I think I'm in my seventh or eighth year of DJing. Um, and I've been, yeah, doing that part-time for all of that. And on the other side of DJing, I'm I'm in retail at the moment. Um, I have been studying for quite a while. Um, and now I'm, I'm basically in the transition of, you know, where do I go next now in um, the, you know, nine-to-five career Side of me, but there is also, I mean, a bit of a fork in the road. There is a part of me that still um, is really, really feeling like I'm in my prime right now with, with DJing. I really know what I like playing and where I want to, to play, and I kind of want to really push that side too. So that's kind of where I'm at in a nutshell. Mm. And you're getting a lot of, um, a lot of really high profile. Um, gigs and um, some really great stuff that's very particular to your kind of sound, um, your obvious interest in dance hall and Latin kind of music and that sort of thing. Um, you've really been able to kind of explore a number of different genres within hip hop, it seems. Yeah. Um, so basically, with hip hop itself, I think for me, I'm at the moment, I'm, I'm going through a little bit of a journey of what I like to play and. Um, you know, I feel like I love a lot of R&B. I love, uh, I love a lot of rap, actually, and I do love dancehall. Um, but I've also discovered different sort of sub-genres of dancehall that have originated from, from different areas other than the Caribbean and Jamaica. So there's, like, Dutch dancehall, and, and there's all different kind of, like, variations of that through Europe that's, like, really big right now that I love. And... Uh, I'm loving a lot of South American music. So, yeah, a lot of Latin, um, ballet funk, like Brazilian funk, um, really, really something I'm really loving, enjoying. Um, I'm loving playing out at the moment, and it seems to get a really great response, and it, it works so well um, with hip-hop, and I'm always open to um, discovering new music that um, has that kind of hip-hop or, you know, R&B sort of, like, sound, and just incorporate, incorporating it into my set. So yeah, and I love that you're um, you're talking about it in this way because I think that um, a lot of the time hip hop kind of people have like one type of music in mind when they think of hip hop, and quite often that's a very specific type of rap. You know, maybe like Tupac, Biggie, Eminem, like that sort of very well known, very male dominated rap music. Um, and so I guess I, I was really interested in talking to you today about um, your obvious, very strong feminist ideals um, and how you you balance that with loving hip hop. But I think you've kind of just burst that all wide open. So um, maybe I'll just ask you a really obvious question to kick it off. Do you think hip hop can be feminist, or can you be a feminist that likes hip hop? Um, I yeah, one hundred percent agree. I think we've, I think um, a lot of there are a lot of women out there that um, I can't speak for everyone, but um, in my circles, there are a majority of women that I'm with love hip hop, love rap, love R and B, um, and they tend to just detach themselves from the actual lyrics of a song, and they will just enjoy it for for what it is. Um, and then on the other side, there are a couple that are like 
quite, you know, find themselves a bit offended by lyrics. Um, I have found myself that I'm more offended or I can be offended um, when I hear about an artist who actually then goes through into their, you know, waking life and, and they actually then act on what they potentially are writing about in their lyrics and singing about and then they yeah they live that that behavior um in their real life i feel like a lot of this this culture now is just um i see a lot of um, misogynistic words that are thrown in but i almost feel like it's it's almost filler for 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 rap lyrics you know things to rhyme with and i i think that you know when we have the the day of social media and, and instagram and we see how so many of these, you know, rappers are actually, you know, quite decent, down-to-earth people that someone like 2 Chains, for example, um, you know, he has been known to, you know, have yeah, questionable lyrics in, in certain songs. It's all in um, in context of just, you know, rap music that's kind of not really um, thought out or any super, like, deep and meaningful lyric. But... On the flip side, during the day, he's got, you know, I think four kids or and mm. he's got a, um, a, a wife that he, you know, loves to celebrate on Instagram. He had the trap house that was in line with his album last year in Atlanta and he opened that as a, um, like a HIV clinic for everyone to get HIV tested. He wanted to raise awareness for that. Um, and he really champions his city of Atlanta. Um, of Atlanta and, and really wants to do that, wants the community that he lives in to, you know, grow up and get some education and, you know, have their sexual health, you know. Mm. Um, so almost like those know, words aren't, aren't reflective of his true personality or his true feelings about things. That these, yeah, and I, I mm. yeah, and so I, I do feel like that, um, yeah, I, and when I see more of that happening, you know, I've, I've heard, there's people like Childish Gambino also who is very vocal about, um, you know, gun control and, you know, wanting to do right for the rest of American society. And, you know, you see in, in the show Atlanta that he's actually um, produced and, and, and written, it highlights racism, it highlights all of these issues. And, um, and also, like, he, he's great to his woman on the side as well. He has baby mamas and, and whatever, and he's quite in, he doesn't seem that he is, um, you know, actioning what he says in his lyrics. He's a, you know, it's almost like it's a persona. Mm. And that's sort of how I look at it. So, okay, that's really interesting. And, and so in that way, I guess you're already doing a bit of this separating the art from the artist thing. And what about, when it comes to the flip side of that, so artists whose music is really, really popular and a lot of people might think is meaningful and that sort of thing, but who um, in their personal lives maybe um, are are doing things that are misogynistic or derogatory to women or that sort of thing. So, you know, a lot of people say that this is rampant in hip-hop. I don't know about rampant, but um, how do you feel about this concept? Uh yeah, I think if if someone that is, you know, writing lyrics about and, and making content and songs about women that they're celebrating, but then on the, you know, in their waking life, they're actually not doing that, that's, for me, when I find it quite problematic. I feel like it's 
the um, like I guess it's still a persona, but if they're putting on a completely different um, like a negative outlook in in you know regardless of what who the artist is, I would I would find it quite problematic for me to um, to really kind of um, represent or or back an artist if they're doing things that I don't agree with in their actual mm. living life um, day to day and promoting something that I find um, you know not that just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I mean, Chris Brown is probably one of them. Mm. I still have that internal conversation every day. Like, I find, you know, his very public um, relationship um, breakdown with Rihanna, with the domestic violence um, court case, and, you know, that that was hard to digest. And even then, he's kind of showing that he's kept slipping up. And, yes, he's still a human as well, but... I do, I do still find it problematic. I know I get a lot of requests to play Chris Brown. So, you know, at the end of the day, if I'm in a club playing for people, it's still a job. So, you know, mm. if like, if there is an overwhelming response and that's what people want to hear, I will sh- like switch off my own personal bias yeah. as a DJ and just, you know, play. Because mm. Chris Brown will have songs that kind of sound like he's more, you know, they're a little friendlier than others. Um, but I do, I do find that a little problematic for me at times. So I'm still having that conversation within myself on where I want to go with that. I do sometimes play sets where I, I've got so much music now that, you know, opening up the doors to other genres means I don't need to necessarily play mm. his stuff. So if I don't get asked for it, I'll, I'll do my best to, to not really do it. Yeah. So, um, and there's a couple of other like new rappers that have come out that are just, you know, there's there's been some some big news stories that have come out about how they've, you know, quite violent towards their, their girlfriends and, and they've had past, um, you know, arrests and, mm. and all of this stuff. And, and so for me, I've completely blacklisted certain rappers from my sets because a lot of it is just so hard to digest and I just, I, I, I find it way too problematic and I've made it quite easy to just sever them out of yeah. my sets. So, yeah. I um, I was thinking about it while I was... Dancing furiously on Friday night at um at the <laughs> the club that you were DJing. Um, yeah. I thought, you know, it was so um so refreshing because I barely heard a male voice your whole set. Um, I think there were even moments where you played like the first verse or the second verse of a song, and I knew that a, a you know a male verse was about to come, and you just cut the song and switched to something else. And I just thought. Yeah. I've never heard a set like this. Um, it's such a male-dominated sound, usually. Um, and I just wondered if you have more plans to do more sets like that or, or more um, more events like that because it was honestly the best fun. Oh, thank you for the props. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I had a, I had a wonderful time um, at the gas Gasometer. Um, Shout out quickly to um, Eliza and Rebecca for putting on such an incredible show. That was a great event. Yes. Um, I, I found that I actually, um, one, I actually don't really notice what I play. Like, I do, I pay attention to what I play, but it's so different listening to, um, you know, a DJ set when you're playing as opposed to being on the other side dancing and, you know, you could really take in what I was playing. I was, you know, in focus mode. So yeah. it actually warms me to hear that, I did play more femme. There, like it was, you know, I could have played whatever I wanted, but um, I think, you know, that is also um, 
um, I guess, an indicator that females in, in hip-hop and rap, dancehall, um, all of these genres that I play, are it, it's the norm now. It is they are they are a force to be reckoned with. There, especially in Australia as well. There's a lot of um, new female um, rappers that are that are coming up that um, I'm seeing on you know my online streaming services. They're popping up. They're they're everywhere. And the fact that it's so popular overseas, and you have people like Princess Nokia that are you know trying to um, champion the the feminist movement through their music. Um, it's good to see that, you know, Australia is like noticing and they're, they're doing it too. And so it's becoming just super normal. And, you know, quite frankly, like women sound amazing on rap beats, on dancehall beats. Mm. And, you know, we want to hear more of their story. You know, we have heard for years and also decades, you know, males telling the story of growing up in, you know, unfortunate, um, childhoods and neighbourhoods, but, um, you know, we haven't really heard from the women. And, it's, I mean, we have heard from, like, people like Queen Latifah, Lauren Hill, back in the day, were always endeavouring to champion feminism in their lyrics. However, you know, it was always male-dominated, and now it's really... you We're really feeling that there is a, a serious, um, yeah, change in, mm. in the sound, and it's it's just so awesome to be able to, you know, say, hey, you know what, do you think you can play a set that's just all female rappers? And you can. So it's um, exciting, exciting time. That is very true. Um, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. But thank you so much for joining us this morning, Larry. Um, it was a no pleasure worries. to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great morning. You too. Bye. Bye. So that was Larry Brown, DJ extraordinaire. Um, and we will post um, we'll post some links to all of our fabulous guests from today and their work up on our Facebook page. Um, and if you follow any of us on Twitter, we've been tweeting as well today. So thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday breakfast, this freezing, freezing cold Tuesday, 19th of June. Um, hopefully next week we'll be back with at least three, maybe four of us. Mm, hopefully. Hopefully. One can hope. Yes. yes. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye.